So, you know, I, I got to tell you, you know, you, I'm used to doing introductions, uh, people, but uh, this is a case where it's actually hard to say something that everyone doesn't already know about it. He's had such an extraordinary uh, career. Uh, you know, I, I didn't realize how many CEO positions he's had, but it's a, it's a lot, right, Ed? Uh, yes, it Motorola, is. General Instruments, or Tyco, uh, or, uh, or, or else. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, uh, really uh, uh, amazing what he's been able to do. And in all cases, he has really, uh, uh, he has really created change and he's created value, but he has also created a lot of change in the businesses that he has run. So I, uh, we're very pleased because in this world today, right, Ed, where things are really quite tumultuous, right? Uh, uh, it puts a premium on trans, you know, leadership for transition, right? Because then it puts a lot more pressure on people to be able to uh, anticipate what the changes are going to be. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of them today, but also then to fashion a strategy that matches the business that they're running uh, to be successful, not only from a business point of view, but from the point of view of the shareholders, right? So that's why we're very pleased to have Ed who's probably one of the leading uh, CEOs who's been able to do this, but multiple times, right? So uh, we're really pleased. So let's uh, uh, let's start out. And I'd like to, uh, you know, Ed, you've had a really extraordinary career, you know, transforming a lot of different companies. Uh, and, you know, I, I think uh, uh, maybe if we could start, uh, if, uh, if you could uh, talk about, um, you know, a little bit about your career and some of the key things, you know, in your career that, you, you know, that uh, that you want to share in terms of the, the, the trajectory of your history. Yeah, sure. And, and Peter, th thanks for having me and uh, good to see everyone uh, virtually. Um, yeah, yeah, so I've been very fortunate. I've been a CEO now. I think this is my 23rd year. Um, and I had the pleasure of starting out at the company right out of college, General Instrument, which is the biggest cable TV technology supplier in the industry. And I joined in 1978 and it was kind of, nobody knew what cable TV was back in those days, but I certainly joined the right company because it was a massively growing industry over the next, uh, you know, three decades. And uh, so I was very fortunate to spend my first 23 years or so there. Uh, ended up being the uh, CEO of the company. And it was probably the best experience I could have had as a young CEO because we took the company private, we took it public again. And um, I really learned a lot during the private part of acting like an owner, moving swiftly, um, making decisions and acting on them and, and did quite a bit of transformation at the a general instrument when I first started out. So I think that really got me going. And it was interesting, Peter, I really got to hang around back in the day when these names weren't known, but with the John Malone's, the Ted Turner's, uh, the Roberts family of Comcast, uh, back when these were small companies and I watched them aggressively grow their companies as entrepreneurs, but eventually public companies. And I think that had a big bearing on my thinking as I continued to develop. Yeah. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about sort of your business experiences, but I always like to to, to ask people a little about their upbringing because, you know, uh, it usually gives some hint as to w how they develop philosophies and so forth. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, there's one CEO that 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 I interviewed, and 
a key development in his life was when he started and ran a lawn mowing business. It was his philosophy about pricing and, and service all came from that. And we dug that up and explained that. But Ed, if you think about your upbringing before you went into business, are there some things about your upbringing that really uh, had a lot of influence on so your philosophies about personal philosophies, but also your business philosophies? Yeah, I, you know, you look back and you do wonder about that. I, I think it did with me. My uh, my father was sort of kind of my mentor, if I could say that. And uh, he worked for the same company for 49 years. And in the middle of that, he started his own business that the family was involved in. Um, so from an early age, like about eight years old, I was involved in growing a, a campground business, actually one of the biggest in the, the uh, Amish country in Pennsylvania and developed it from scratch, built it up into a fairly large business. And I was always interested in adding up the numbers at the end of the day. So I, I think I just got a, a, a business bent kind of early in life and through my uh, teenage years. So I was very fortunate. By the way, I grew up in a very stable family environment, which, you know, not everyone gets to enjoy that. And, um, you know, ended up going to college, studied business and economics in college, took a lot of accounting courses. Um, so that probably teed me up because that was my interest area was sort of um, in the business world. And then by the way, for anyone that wants to be a CEO, I'll just say this, I've had a very stable family life myself. I think it's hugely important because there's so many things you got to do as a CEO of a, a large company. And I've been married for 42 years, have no family issues, never have had any family issues. And I I think that really helps a lot, uh, you know, if you want to be a CEO for as many years as I've been. So, Ed, uh, do you have a wife who's been influential? She's sort of the, the power behind the throne. I, yes, I would say so. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> she, she raised the three kids very well because I wasn't around a lot. <laughs> so the next question is, um, you know, we could talk about the businesses, but but I think an important place to start is leadership skills, right? And actually, those have changed over time. You know, what, what it took to be a CEO 200 years ago, whatever, was quite different than today. If you reflect just on that uh, issue, which is, what do you think the CEO skills today uh, that are important uh, for running companies today, particularly, you know, public companies? Yeah, so, and, and it's interesting. I, I don't think they've changed a ton. Um, I, I, I always start out. And I, I look at the top CEOs who I consider the good ones. Um, you you kind of can go down the list of the top 200 companies, say good, average, bad. And I think one thing in common with really good CEOs, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. Um, I always tell kids coming out of college, you know, they're always asking me these questions or early in their career. I'm like, do something you're passionate about, because if you're passionate about it, it's infectious in a good way. People want to be around you. You're a natural leader because of it and people just gravitate to that. So have a passion for what you do. And I think the reason I've been doing it so long, um, I'm 65 years old, I still enjoy doing it. I like to me, it's like the best hobby I could have. So I think passion is important. I think you have to be great at building teams. It's a team game. Um, I, I always use it, it's like sports teams. They talk all week about who's gonna play the football game on the weekend and who's the talent and what are we gonna do? And so building great teamwork. And then I spent a lot of time putting the right team players in the right spots. I literally, every day I think about it. Uh, you can't win a game without the best team on the field. So I think those skills have been the same skills 
we've all used for years. And then I, I would just add one other one I think is important. You got to be transparent with each other. And I think that's where a lot of companies fall down. I, I have a system, Peter, I call it, everyone knows it, they laugh. It's by the way, Alan Mulally used the same system when he took over Ford. Uh, him and I laughed over at dinner one night. I call it red flags, green flags. You can tell me all the good news, that's the green flags, but I want to hear all the bad news and I want to hear it early. And, you know, if you have a very transparent organization like that, it's amazing how quickly you can fix problems and they're not hidden from you. So everyone knows they come to my staff meeting Monday morning, red flags, green flags. And mm -hmm. usually it ends up being all red flags. So, you know, it's, they, they just regurgitate all the bad stuff. And that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, what, what the interesting thing is, uh, if, if you know, if I look across some of the CEOs that I've worked with and I've known over the years, uh, some of them, they just stayed in the same industry, right? They, they grew up, they grow through industry. And if they change, they might change from one company to another company in the same industry. Your situation is like dramatically different, right? I mean, I think it's safe to say that you wouldn't uh, say that Tyco, General Instruments, Motorola, or DuPont make the same products, right? Or in the same markets. And I think that actually makes for, um, I guess, a bigger challenge because your your leadership is not based on product knowledge, right? It's or, or knowledge of that industry. But could you maybe um, in, in that vein, can you give us some examples of some of the key strategic insights and management decisions you made at those companies that actually, uh, that, that were important to driving the business, but also that, that you would have done differently if, if, if you were faced, say, in Motorola rather than Tyco, right? Yeah, so, you know, it, it goes back to the, the, the bed, Bedrock sort of is the, the things I just talked about. You can go to pretty much any company and run it if you have the right system down. I, I feel like I've developed a great operating rhythm when I run a company, uh, but it goes back to that teamwork, the transparency in the organization and those type of skills that people don't talk about enough. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter, matter what company you go to. I think those skills apply no matter where you're at. But when it comes to transformations, um, you know, I, I never wanted to be an average CEO. I said, I, you know, everywhere I went, I'm going to go for it. And I always looked at how can I optimize shareholder value over the long term. And, you know, it's interesting, Peter, when I look back in my career, I've made maybe 16, 17 really major decisions that moved the needle in the different companies I've run. So you don't make that many. You're, you're making decisions every day, all the time, but the really big ones that move the needle on shareholder value just aren't that many. And those 16 or 17 I did, you just have to get those right. You know, you, you've got to study them to death. And then when, when you get to the point where you've studied it all, you got to move and move rapidly and go do it. So by the way, I go back when I was a young CEO at General Instrument. We had a gentleman, Ted Forsman, one of the great private equity guys that actually started the private equity industry with KKR. He owned 27% of the company still. And I went to him and I said, Ted, the world's going analog to digital. GI's developed the best digital. And by the way, that's the 500 channel set top box, by the way, um, mm -hmm. from 36 channels to 500. And I said, um, I've got this thing developed. It costs too much. It's like $400. Nobody's going to buy it, but we're first to get the technology developed and prove it that it works. And I said, how about we give the cable operators ownership in general instrument if they give us all their business? So we structured a warrant deal 
Um, I locked up 70% of the industry in this deal. And we gave the cable industry about 15% ownership in the company. And then the company just took off from there. And if you had a set-top box in your house, it was most likely, or 70% chance it was a general instrument set-top mm -hmm. box. And I remember when I went to Ted, he said, Ed, it's your company. That's a pretty bold move you want to make, but it's your company. Do what you think's right. And that was a big learning lesson for me. I truly like, all right, this is my company. What would I do? And I went ahead and did it. So those things you can do in any company, you got to think through what can transform the company and create a ton of value. By the way, at Tyco, I'll give you the great, once we saved the company, and by the way, we were the only company in trouble at that time with the Justice Department and SEC that actually did not go bankrupt. It was WorldCom, it was Enron, Arthur Anderson, uh, Adelphi, and us. And we're the only ones that survived, but we made some bold moves quick. And after we did it, you know, the stock had gone up four or five hundred percent. And I went to the board and uh, said, I think we should split the company up into five different companies. I think we'll create even more value. Uh, that process took about a year to convince the board, you know, go through the details. We split the company up over a five year period and the stock went up another 500 percent. Um, so, you know, again, it, it seemed bold to a lot of people and it didn't need to be done, but I thought it was the best path to create a lot of value for shareholders. And we, we went ahead and did it. Yeah. Well, I think also one of the things that's clearly been true throughout your 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 career is you you've been balancing the business the business optimization with shareholder value right and and that's actually critical because uh, you really can't favor one over the other right uh, if you're going to be successful yeah well I always say to the team it's like I, I love college basketball because they actually play defense the whole game and they play offense the whole game. And I, I always say to the team, you got to play a lot of offense, but you got to play defense. So I have a style that, you know, when I'm not working on the transformation stuff, we're operationally very, very focused. And, you know, we're always wringing out costs out of the company, but I love to put about half of it back into the growth initiatives. And it's a nice balance. Every company should figure out their own balance. But, you know, every year I optimize the cost structure, uh, mostly taking G&A out of the expense line and I'm adding back R&D and application engineers and things like that. And it's a nice formula to grow your company. So you have to have a great operating style, but I never take my eye off of, is there a big lever I could pull to really create a ton more value than just incrementally move it along operationally? Yeah, yeah. and that makes sense because, and, and also you got to invest in innovation and technology because what's the old saying that says, no one ever caught cost cutted their way into growth, right? That is uh, the truth. To be successful, right? Yeah. Now, the value of a company at the end of the day is growing the top line and having an efficient operating model under it, but you gotta be growing the top line. That's yeah. where the multiple comes from. Now, uh, you've had a little project the last couple of years called Dow DuPont, this little project uh, you know, that you've been working on that uh, is still in transition by your own, you know, by your own comment to me. So, uh, you know, just maybe if you look back and say, what have the accomplishments been thus far, and 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 how do you think the future will unfold for the sort of these companies that you created and the one that you're leading now, uh, which which is Dupont. 
Yeah, so Peter, that was an interesting period. I was actually retiring from Tyco and joined the DuPont board because they were having a bunch of issues and uh, ended up taking over the CEO role seven months into being a board member. So that was six years ago and I'm still here doing it. <laughs> it was, it's gonna be a short stint and uh, it's turning into quite a long one. And um, you, you know, it was, it, this goes back to making a bold move, but you gotta study it really well. DuPont was not performing well, but it had a lot of great assets. And the issue strategically was that the ag agriculture industry was going to consolidate. You could see it happening. And by the way, it did happen. You know, the buyer Monsanto deal Syngenta to ChemChina. And we had more than 50% of the value of DuPont was in our two agriculture businesses. And we were going to be stuck as like the number six player in a field of five. And Dow had the same issue with their ag business. And our two ag businesses were the best two to put together because it gave us a full complement of crop protection and seeds. And it made the most balanced portfolio besi besides Bayer Monsanto that you could have. So when you have over 50% of your value in that and you see in front of you a monumental risk, um, it really looked at, could we put the two ag companies together? The more we studied it, or I studied it, I'm like, wow, I love all these specialty businesses in Dow. They actually fit with all the specialty businesses at DuPont. And by the way, that was the old Roman Haas. And I think Raj Gupta is on your agenda today. He was the CEO of Roman Haas before he sold it to Dow. That's right. And so we took the electronics business, the nutrition business, um, the building business, and put them all together with the like businesses at DuPont. So. I think out of it, we created three very focused companies, an agriculture leader, a specialty leader, and more of a, a material science um, a chemical company in Dow. And by the way, in the middle of all that, we spun out our big nutrition and health business and created the world leader in IFF in the nutrition and health space. Um, and we did that about eight months ago. So we have four really great companies that we created. And then the reason I told you the journey wasn't over is we made our last big transformative announcement last week, and we're effectively getting out of the cyclical part of DuPont, um, more, more on the commodity side than the specialty side, and divesting a business um, that we'll probably get about $12 billion for. And we had simultaneously announced the acquisition of Rogers Corp, which is a great electronics material company that adds to our portfolio. So we're in the middle of that last big transition now over the next year to really have the DuPont portfolio, very high end, faster growth, low cyclicality, and it compares very well to the best multi-industrial companies in the world and benchmarks extremely well. So we've been on literally this six year journey to get to this point. Yeah. Well, it's, it, you've made a lot of progress. And um, I think the word retirement doesn't seem to apply to you from, from what I can tell, right? Uh, so, uh, but I think that's good for the shareholders uh, that, 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 that you're in the saddle. Um, you know, there's an interesting thing. We talked about differences by industry, you know, the styles of CEO and so forth. But then there are also, uh, if you look at some of the famous CEOs like yourself, uh, they have some uh, really uh, different uh, philosophies. You know, for example, uh, Jack Welch, the, the most famous philosophy is we want to be number one or number two in everything that we are. Right, and that was what drove GE during the Jack Welch uh, Welch days. But he says, "But I don't doesn't bother me if I'm in, you know, aircraft engines and 
and and in healthcare and so forth, as long as I'm I have a collection of, of leaders, right? Um, another a contrast is uh, Jeff Bezos, where he says, well, this new technology of inter, you know of the internet and uh, if I build a distribution system tied to it, I can disrupt the retail industry. And so in his case, totally different philosophy, which is how do we take a technology and disrupt an existing industry? So if you were to look at your own you, you know, philosophies, is there kind of a signature philosophy like that, of that type, you know, sort of a headline type of philosophy? Or is it one that is changed based on the circumstance, which would be totally reasonable as well? Yeah, well, Peter, it, it's interesting. I, I think there's, um, I, I do have kind of my own philosophy, but I would take it a notch above that for a second. Um, I think in today's world, there's so many things going on to disaggregate your company and maybe commoditize your company or change the whole business model. And look, you see it everywhere. The, in the retail market with Amazon is probably one of the great examples out there. Um, I think when you're running a company in today's world, you got to be really transparent about, you know, all companies do strategy and I do a five-year strategy and I do it with the board and they kind of know where I want to head. The bigger thing I think you have to watch more so in today's world than even back, you know, 30 years ago is, um, is doing a real honest risk assessment in your business. So when I go back to say I have made 16 or 17 really big moves in my career, half of those moves when I went back and looked at it, I did because I was concerned about a risk um, and I needed to address a risk. So the agriculture story I gave you was a risk. Splitting up Tyco was totally a strategy, proactive, positive strategy move. So it, it's interesting when you, when you talk to the, your board, um, I talk more about risk a lot of times and how can I mitigate this? And if you get in front of it early, you can usually address it. So I just say philosophically, I think it, a CEO in today's world has got to be great at strategy and has to be great at having a, a real robust risk assessment. And then you can proactively deal with any issues that come up. So uh, th that's kind of number one. I, I must say I lean more towards the Jack Welsh model. I'm a crazy benchmarker. Every company I go into, I benchmark every metric. And then, then everyone I say, why aren't we best in class? And why can't we get the best in class? And usually you can get there. And so I'm a big believer in, in totally in benchmarking. And then I fall where Jack falls. I spend a lot of time on the leadership supply in the company. Do we have the right people in the right spots? And by the way, that changes over time. You can have a great leader. They can have things going on in their life or they get bored or they're not passionate anymore. And you really got to be on top of that and always make sure you got the best team on the field. So uh, I think Jack, a lot of Jack's philosophies apply. I, I do think if you're in a conglomerate like I'm done, uh, you better have some glue that ties things together or you're going to very much have an activist on you if you're as separated a company as GE was, which back when Jack did it, you could do that easier. Today, you would probably get a lot of pressure um, if they were really disconnected and there wasn't some glue that was important in the company. In our company in DuPont, it's a very intense R&D thing. We're, we're on the cutting edge of material science. We're creating we're fixing new problems every day for our customers, like in the semiconductor industry. So yes, we're in different diverse markets, but the glue is our R&D machine, our scientists, our application engineers, and it's a very powerful machine. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, transformation of a company has a lot of different dimensions. It's not just one dimension. Uh, you have to have a view of where the world is heading overall and, and, and specifically in the industries you're in. Uh, you have to uh, have a, a view of how your company is aligned with that, your view of the future, right? Uh, and how value can be created and, 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 and unlocked uh, and what has to be improved or changed, but also as you mentioned before, uh, having the right senior uh, senior team. So I guess the question if, uh, to you is, if you're a public company, uh, can you tell us how you've dealt with these kinds of issues? Because there are like four or five things, each of which is important, right? You have to have a view of the future. You have to under, have, have the right people. You have to understand what variables, tools you have. So how have you sort of those factors you know, how have you dealt with these specific issues in the companies you've led? Yeah, so so first of all, it's just like operationally, you got to run your company well. So again, I go back to my benchmarking. Um, I, I look at every line. I look at the research line. I look at the G&A line. I look at the sales line. And I like to overspend on sales. As I said, I like to overspend on R&D. So I try to benchmark above the median of the best companies that we look at. And by the way, we do it by sub-business because we are a conglomerate. We don't do it at the high level of DuPont. And, you know, so just operationally, you got to run well. Um, by the way, it goes back to also, if you're going to do something transformative, because I'm always thinking that way, you need to talk to your board about it early and a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. So what I do, Peter, I take the first hour of every board meeting. And, I, I, and by the way, I've, I know a couple other CEOs that do it and, and a board I'm on. Uh, I take the first hour and I just talk about uh, strategy and risk. Um, and then by the time we get ready to do something or something becomes available for us to do, the board is well aligned. They know exactly what we want to do and we're ready to move and move fast. By the way, I'm the lead director on the Comcast board. Brian Roberts, the CEO, does an awesome job. We call it Breakfast with Brian. It's one hour before the board meeting starts, and he does the same thing. And then when we make a big move at Comcast, everybody already know about it. We've talked it through, whether it's a proactive strategy or a risk that we're trying to resolve. And so that's a little bit of the trick behind it, because it, a board cannot come along quickly on something really, really big. They need time to soak on it and ask a lot of questions. Um, so I think that's a, a key part if you're a CEO and you want to make some big, bold moves. Um, talk about it constantly because when you get to resolve it, you're ready. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you point out a very interesting point because actually uh, a lot of the boards, they, 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 look, they look at the wrong end of the telescope. They, they, spend too, they don't spend enough time thinking about the overall strategy. And they spend a lot of time on, you know, finance this and that. And they, and, and they, but I think your point is you got to force them, not force them, but you want to talk about uh, the big picture and the strategy uh, at every meeting, right? Because execution, if you don't have a good plan, doesn't work really well. Good strategy doesn't work very well. Well, and, and by the way, you should limit some of the board stuff on the financials. I mean, we all read, you know, Comcast, I read it ahead of time. I, I get it. Um, you know, I, I maybe have two or three questions. I don't need them to regurgitate the whole thing for two hours. And then you can spend a lot more time doing the strategy, the risk, and really talk about the real issues out there. And look, the world's moving so fast. 
you know, we're all looking at massive changes that just didn't happen this fast when I first became a CEO. So I think you have to spend more and more time in that area with your board, um, you know, to get it right. Yeah. So um, the um, there's a there's a different dimension I also want to talk about, and that is uh, the fact that we're in the current environment facing so many unusual disruptions, right? Uh, we're in a particularly challenging world, whether it's supply chain disruptions, the pandemic, the geopolitical tensions. I mean, what's going on between Russia, China, U.S. and so forth is really pretty remarkable. We have an energy crisis, right? And, and the price of oil and then people uh, in the U.K. can't get gasoline or natural gas, for example. Shortages of labor that are driving up labor costs. Uh, and, and, and some concerns about some specific economies, like there is a lot of concern about whether China is going to get past the Evergrande and all this whole real estate bursting the bubble and all the other changes. So I, you know, thinking back over the years, usually there are like two or three things on your list of things that are really not pleasant that you're having to deal with. I just listed about seven or eight. So in that context, and this is not, a, you know, 20 years from now. But as a CEO, can you have a view of where some of these issues are heading and then how you then have translated to how you're running running the company? And by the way, you, yeah, have look, the, you have the attention of a lot of these folks because a lot of these folks are running companies that are, they have the same list as I that I ran through. Well, by, by the way, I think it's a great example this year. And yeah, you listed the whole litany of them. I'll just take um, raw material inflation, by the way, is massive for all of us. and. In DuPont alone, our raw materials went up $400 million this year. And by the way, this is the difference between if you're gonna run your company well or not. We got in front of it, we got in front of it early and we covered all 400 million of raw material inflation with price increases. And, and by the way, most of our customers didn't argue with the price increase, they just wanted more material because there's not enough material out there either, as many of you know from the chemical industry. So the, the beat up with your customers was more of that than actually the price increase. So by the way, I've watched companies in our peer set, they didn't get in front of the price. And, you know, it's very transparent for investors to see, geez, I don't think they're running the company as well as that other company over there that did get in front of it. So you got to take quick, aggressive action when these things are going on. By the way, logistics costs just ocean freight is up 300%. So, you know, companies should be looking at surcharges on freight if you don't feel like sticking it into your product pricing. Um, and then you got to move fast on it. So you, you just got to stay in front of that stuff. But, you know, I, by way, you always want a strong balance sheet in the company. I remember when all this stuff with the pandemic started, I immediately went out and did a $2 billion bond offering, which I ended up really probably not needing. But I was also a CEO in 08, 09, when the world really looked like it was falling right. apart. And uh, you don't want to be sitting with a shaky balance sheet. So I'd say always be thinking about that, you know, even in the good times, because the good times don't always last. And uh, it's happened to me a few times in my career. And a strong balance sheet makes you sleep well at night. And then, by the way, I would also say with all the stuff going on right now, and I'll go back to even my 08, 09 experience when, you know, drop 25%. Um, I always use that as the opportunity kind of to turn proactive with my management team and say, look, let's stay on the growth pedal. Let's not be cutting everywhere. We're going to come through this and I want to come through it stronger than our key competitors. So 
I did the same thing this time. I went to the team. I said, let's up our R&D a little more. Let's put some more application engineering in. By the way, we're overspending on CapEx for growth projects the last couple of years. We're above depreciation, which you usually don't want to run there forever. But I'm going for it on the growth piece. And that really invigorates your organization when everybody's worried about all these other issues. Like, wow, they're going for it to continue to build the company when most people are nipping and tucking the whole time and kind of ducking their head. So I think that's a good way to kind of really juice up your organization and get them excited that you're you're working through your growth initiatives through some really difficult times. And by the way, I'd, I'd add one thing. The CEO has got to be the, be the biggest cheerleader of the company. That's with investors, but it's with your own employees. And I have had more Zoom calls with my supply chain team, my logistics team, just thanking them for everything they're doing, working seven days a week. Uh, that a boy goes a long way with your people. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I, I have to say, Stability and being consistent, uh, particularly when it comes to growth initiatives, is really important. Because if you if if you have a crisis and you and then you suddenly cut back, it, it affects you a while. It takes a while for you to restart the, the growth. But of sure. course, one of the nice thing, I like I like the fact you point out that the employees and management love the growth because it's not just the investors, right? Uh, people, employees, hopefully they like. Uh, you know, they like companies that are growing and they, they're greater opportunities. So it really affects the whole the whole system, right? When, you, when you're focused on growth. Uh, by the way, one, there was one, uh, one CEO who was a good friend of mine and he said, he had the same philosophy as you, which is, you know, if you, you, you cannot, uh, you can't confuse the job of the CEO. If the, judge, if the CEO thinks that he's going to run everything, it's going to be a disaster. CEO and the board, they set strategy. And then the CEO's main priority uh, is to find good people to run the businesses and to be your cheerleader. And he said, if you go beyond that and you think you're going to start running all the individual businesses, one, the good people will leave. The bad people might stay, but uh, you debilitate the company, right? Yeah, well, I, look, I totally agree with that. But by if you get down in the weeds on everything individually and not let your people do it, you're, you're correct. They're not going to develop. They're not going to stay. And by the way, if you really do all that, you have no time to spend on the big picture stuff of where you want to take the company in the next five years. And, and you know, you, you, I spend a high percentage of time thinking about those big swings that will make a big difference and then really studying them and wrestling them to the ground. Yeah. Well, we, uh, uh, I'm going to switch topics again because uh, we've talked about, you know, how do you get a strategy, how to manage your people, how to align things, so forth. But the world is um, a strange place. Uh, no matter how good your crystal ball is, and no, no matter how smart you think you are, things happen that you can't plan for, right? And I remember my father, he said, I... He had two. He had two two things to. You know, he had a lot of things he told me. But one was he said, uh, "Expect change and expect that you'll there'll be changes that you didn't anticipate." So the important thing is for you to figure out how to manage yourself and your career to be resilient, and or if you're running something, right, to adapt to these sudden changes in an intelligent way, right? Uh, you know, um, I'm president of Societe de Chemie Industrielle, the one largest and oldest nonprofit serving chemicals and life sciences. Pandemic hit, 
and we, we just got the whole board together and said, we're going to change the strategy in the next week because we can't afford to take six months to figure out how to go from a totally in-person events to something. And we did that. And we also said, let's not think of this as just defense. Let's think of it as offense. If, if we have webcasts, we can do more of them. So we went from nine events a year to 20 events a year, right? And, and we're more profitable, though we're not profitable. We're not trying to make money. So I think that's the point, which is you got to be able to. Now, in your case, though, I'm sure over the years, you got hit by things that you just didn't, you couldn't have for, you know, forecasted, right? And so I guess the question is, uh, how do you build resilience and the ability to pivot into the management of your companies? Yeah, well, well, again, you, you can't predict everything. Um, but, you know, your company's got to be healthy enough to survive. A, you know, I, I'll call it a, a torpedo hit to the ship. I always kind of think of it that way. Like, you know, something really drastic happened. You know, what would you do? And again, you can't actually figure out the event that's going to happen to you. But that gets back to my point. Um, I, you always want to maintain a strong balance sheet in your company because at the end of the day, you're going to get through whatever the, the issue is you're dealing with unless you have that issue going on. But it goes back to the point, Peter, I made a minute ago. I always try to take a downturn or what should maybe feels negative um, in a company, you know, because of the pandemic, for instance, you know, second quarter of the other year, everything, you know, went down. And I always try to move real quickly to growth strategy. What are we going to do positively to influence our customers who want to buy more from us? And so I think, and by the way, I do it on purpose because, you know, employees are, by the way, they're a little more depressed during this period of time. And, you know, to show them that you're investing in the company to grow it more. Um, by the way, while I'm cutting GNA costs. So the, last year is a great example where when the pandemic hit, we cut $400 million of cost out of the GNA line of the company. We really squeezed it down uh, because the less GNA you have, it doesn't hurt anything else. And we reinvested some of it in our growth initiatives. And as I said, in CapEx spend and our employees are looking at us like, wow. And I'm like, look, while everyone else is kind of hurting, let's really keep, you know, lifting weights and getting stronger here. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, we're going to come out of this in way better shape. And it just sends a great tone throughout your company. So I would ask people, you know, if you're in a CEO spot or going to be, you know, you always got to take the negative and then, but both, what can we do positive while the negative is going on? Um, and, you know, look, other events hit you over time that, you know, you, you just got to pivot and put the right talent on it. Um, you know, I took over at Tyco. Um, I wasn't even worried about running the business my first few months. I was literally like, I got to get the board of directors that just hired me. I got to get them all to leave. And I got to get the whole corporate team out of Tyco because of what happened. And if I don't do that, I don't get to fight another day. I needed to raise money within six months of being a Tyco or the company was going bankrupt. And so you just got to pivot. And I pivoted to going to the justice, head of the justice department, the head of the SEC, the Manhattan DA. And I said, listen, I just got rid of the whole board and brought in a whole new board, which by the way had never been done in corporate America before. And I, I'm bringing in a whole new management team. I got rid of 290 of the top 300 people. And I said, this is a different company. It's run by ethical people. Um, you know my board members. These are all known names in the marketplace that have phenomenal careers. And you pivot quick and you do it. I did it and I raised a ton of money and then it was okay. Now I can go run Tyco and 
take my time and enjoy it. And then that's exactly what we did and had, a, you know, a phenomenal success with it. But stuff happens and man, you better turn your attention to it. Well, it also sounds like you during that period where you really changed your structure, you 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 had to deal with the fact that you made a lot of people unhappy, but that you were trying to do the right thing. Right. Well, listen, I went to the board um, and they were pretty shocked and pretty upset with me. And I said, the company is not going to get through these issues if the same board is here that was here when the issues occurred. I need you all to step down. And it was a three month battle. They got their own lawyers. They lawyered up and, you know, you could easily cave that. I'm like, I'm not going to get over this if I don't make a change there. And, you know, finally, I convinced enough of them and we had a vote and we ended up starting to change them out. It was very interesting. Jack Kroll, who used to run DuPont, I appointed as the lead director. I think the stock went up a buck, buck and a half that day. The second director I announced was Jerry York, and he was the famed CFO that turned around Chrysler with Lee Iacocca and then with Lou Gershner, the turnaround at IBM. And everybody loved Jerry York, and he was the toughest guy I ever met in my life operationally. And when I announced him, the stock went up another couple of dollars, and it was just the the credibility of the company was coming back and that's really what that showed and then we announced you know eight other board members and um I, it was easier for me to get all the legal issues resolved with the company because we did it yeah well that's really really important and, it, and it's important for the ceo to be able to make moves that are not necessarily uh popular or uh the ability to say you know i changed my mind right I mean, uh, way back when, when I was fixing chemical companies at Bain, Bain and Company, I remember, uh, you know, they were, they were number two, supposedly in polyester to DuPont, right? Who was, was number one. And they said, well, you know, we're number two and there's six guys and there's overcapacity. So, uh, number, the number six guys should get out, but we'd like you to figure out what the problem is. So we did, I won't go through the detail, we figured out. And I, I remember I presented the board and the CEO and I said, and they had been touting to everyone, we're number two in poly, you know, polyester, so we're the survivor. So I said, well, the good news is your view that number six should get out is absolutely accurate. The bad news is you're number six. And the reason <laughs> was that everyone, everyone except uh, Monsanto uh had about one third specialty than your you know uh, polyester and that's where you made the money and and monsanto was a hundred percent commodity uh, polyester and was losing the most money of all of the six so the ceo he took a he took a gulp and he said you know gee I, last three years i've been telling people we're going to get through this we're number two so you're telling me i got to tell people that we're number six and we're getting out i said well that's my suggestion, my suggestion, right? Uh, and leisure shoots are not coming back, so that's not going to save you. <laughs> so they decided they shut down. And uh, uh, if you go back to the day they made the announcement, Monsanto stock went up 25%, right? But I give credit for the CEO who said, you know, I'm willing to tell people, you know, I was wrong, right? And he stayed as CEO because people had trust in, in, in his judgment, right? So the last question before we open it up to questions from the audience and from the people who are here. And by the way, if it's, it's easy for those people in, in person because they could just raise their hand, right? Uh, those who are virtual, uh, what you should do is just use the chat box and, uh, and, and type in your question and we'll be able to see it. My last question is this, in this room and also virtually, you have a lot of senior 
management. Some, a lot of them are CEOs, some are, 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 are heads of corporate development or, or CFOs, uh, you know, and, and many are aspiring CEOs, obviously, or CEOs thinking about how to continue to be successful. What advice would you give them in terms of achieving success as a transformational leader? If, if you were sitting down with any of them in the privacy of a living room or whatever, what advice would you give them uh, that they could carry away with them? You, you know, Peter, it's interesting. Maybe, maybe I'll say it this way because I've said this many times uh, and to myself, by the way. I, I said that when, when you run a company, you look in the mirror in the morning while you're shaving. Um, you say to yourself, this is my company. Act like an owner. Uh, what would you do if it was 100% your company? I, I mean, that went back to my Ted Forsman comment when I was a young CEO. And he said, Ed, it's your company. Do what you think is right. And it always stuck with me my whole career. And I, again, I didn't want to just be the normal run of the middle, you know, I'll just get by as a CEO. I'm like, I, I, I want to make the best moves to create value for shareholders. So I, I say, number one, act like an owner, think a little bit out of the box. Don't let any barrier stand in the way of what is possible. So I'll give you the, the example of Dow DuPont. Um, everyone said to me, Ed, there's no way you can merge with Dow. Dow and DuPont are mortal enemies. And I said, well, how can that be? We're, all, we're in all the same industries. We actually should, you know, we, we must think alike in a lot of ways. And by the way, if, if I'll give you another example why sometimes these things are hard to do um, is in the state of Delaware, DuPont is Delaware. And we've been here for 220 years. Um, the state of Delaware didn't like what I was doing for quite a period of time. Now they love how it's ended up and how the company's doing, but they didn't understand the whole transformation that was going on. So they're hard decisions to make, but if in your heart, you know, you're making the big moves um, and you're acting like an owner in the best interest of really creating value for your shareholders. If you're creating value for your shareholders, you're probably doing well by your employees, you're doing well by your vendors, your suppliers, um, you know, it all plays into a, a positive outcome. So. You know, I, I go back to act like an owner, study everything and study risk and get in front of it. And I think if you you do that, you can, you know, you'll be a very successful CEO. But you got to put a good team around you. You cannot do this on your own. It's a team sport. Yeah. Well, Ed, I, I tell you, your advice should also apply to investment bankers. And our philosophy at Younger Partners is we think what if we were the owners or we the CEO. And uh, so often we recommend not doing something, even though we wouldn't, uh, we won't get a fee if we, they follow the recommendation. But at the end of the day, uh, the most important thing is to how to help companies be successful, right? Yeah. Well, Peter, you just made a great point. When, when an investment banker says to me, I don't think you should do this. And here's why. I never forget that person because I actually respect that more than someone just trying to play to what I'm thinking. So it doesn't happen often, but when it does, that's a very special person. Well, it was interesting because we were we were hired to help a public, big public company make an important decision about whether to, you know, to split up and so forth. And and I remember we gave a presentation to the board, and then at the end, the CEO and the chairman said, "Well, could you step out of the room because we want to discuss this and so forth, but don't leave. You know, just step out of the room." So we did, and about a half an hour later, the chairman and CEO came uh, uh, came out, and they said, "Well, we just want to let you know the board 
has accepted your recommendation and that's what we're going to do. And we had two reasons. I said, wow, I'm lucky if there's one reason why somebody likes something I said. He said, the first reason was because your recommendation analysis is impeccable, was very compelling uh, that, 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 that your recommendation, you, you had analysis backing up and so forth. And I said, well, what was the second one? He said, because where your engagement letter is, was, was written, it was very clear you would make more money, a lot more money, if you had recommended the other one. And I said, uh, well, which one was more compelling? He said, actually, they were both compelling, but personally, I thought the second one was quite compelling. <laughs> <laughs> so let's open it up. We have about 10 minutes left for questions. So I'm going to start with the people here in the room. And uh, Ed, you can't see them, but I can see them. So, uh, and what I like is each person, if they have a question, uh, speak loudly uh, and uh, identify yourself before you ask a question. Joe McCann with ICIS Chemical Business. Hi, Ed. Uh, just wanted to, uh, you know, on the mobility and materials uh, divestiture or, or, you know, the majority of that, you know, do you envision a, one, a buyer for, for all that you want to divest or is it you think it's going to happen in pieces? And, it's, you know, it seems like strategic buyers would like to, yeah, would, would be natural ones for, for some of that. Just want to get your thoughts on that. And also yeah, so um, by the way, what's I, I hate selling stuff um, of significance because of tax leakage. What's so amazing, and we knew this in this deal, uh, we've been waiting to get to this point, is because we merged with Dow, Dow was technically the acquirer. And so we stepped up all the assets, the historical assets at DuPont. So the tax leakage on this deal is less than 10% and more like five or 6%. So it's really incredible and really pays for us to sell it and redeploy the cash, number one. Um, I'm, I'm highly confident it's gonna sell in one piece um, and that's how we're approaching it. Um, besides some strategics, I actually think this is an asset that um, the private equity world really covets um, and I'm, probably speaking out of school a little, but since it's public knowledge, I also think a private equity firm would be salivating with the announcement that DSM is gonna get rid of their like business, which is about half the size of ours. And you could really create a powerhouse company if you want to put the two together and get a ton of synergies out of it. So I know people are gonna look at it that way. Who knows if it happens, but um, I think it goes in, in, in one piece and probably in the next, you know, I would say four to five months to lock down a, a contract with somebody. And by the way, we're going to take the proceeds and pay off the Rogers deal that we announced the same day for 5.2 billion, but we'll have a, a, some billions of dollars left over. And I was very direct with our investors last week that we're going to mostly redeploy, redeploy it in additional acquisitions to finish the transformation. and. By the way, I don't take one day or one week stock moves, but but the stock was up 15% in the last week on the announcement. So the, the market totally got what Trump do. Any other questions here from anyone? Anyone? Yeah. Anyone, uh, any questions from the, uh, you know, from the virtual audience? Uh, send it through their chat box. We know you're there. Well, Ed, you know, I always feel that there, there, uh, uh, if there aren't that many questions, 
it's usually because you've covered all the topic well. So I, with that, I really want to thank you. Oh, oh, the, oh, I'm sorry. Now, now the hands have come up. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, uh, Carlos. Yeah. Uh, th thank you for a great talk. Uh, uh, yeah, this is very, uh, very fascinating to hear a person of your experience uh, share with us. Uh, I have a question that, uh, you know, is sort of overdone, but uh, I'd love to get your perspective, you know, with the challenges that our nation faces, you know, both from the perspective of uh, climate and energy transition, as well as, you know, well, he's lost the connection. He's coming back. There you go. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry, I think we lost the connection. But uh, he's um, back. He's back. Uh, I, I left it at you know the challenges the nation has, you know, both respect to climate, energy transition, and also the uh, you know geopolitical competition, particularly from China and, and other sectors. What, what's the role of, of, of private industry and companies like Dupont <clears> to uh, uh, address some of these issues on a forward basis. Yeah, so by the way, there, there's a powerful tool for all of us that run at least some of the bigger companies, and that's the business roundtable. So I, I lean on them a lot on a lot of policy issues. Um, they're very effective because you've got the clout of so much of corporate America behind you. So we've weighed in, for instance, very heavily on the China relationship um, and, and it's got, let me just say it this way, it has to stay friendly from a business environment standpoint, because that, that would affect so many different companies, by the way, globally, obviously, but like even DuPont, we're 20% of our businesses in China. Um, so that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, but some of these other issues, like for instance, the supply chain going on, you know, just to use that as one of the big problems right now, would you really want to continue to look at localizing your, your supply chain. So what we were already doing, thank heavens, is most of our supply chain is regionally set. So for what we do in Asia Pacific, a lot of our uh, components and things that come to us um, are local in the region. And thank heavens that was the case because you don't want to be manufacturing, for instance, in Vietnam and China and sending stuff back over to the U.S. or, you know, wherever and you're, you've got all these freight costs and time delays. So I think every CEO is looking at resolving those kind of issues if they're not fully there with their portfolio and, and making sure that's more localized going forward. So, you know, some of those issues like that, you can knock off. By the way, Business Roundtable and all companies, as you know, are well behind the sustainability goals. Um, I am finally getting investors asking me about it. I used to chuckle to myself. It was you know, the companies are trying to do the right thing. I never had investors ask. They clearly are asking now. They want to see your sustainability report. And uh, one of the things we're doing is we shift our portfolio. We're actually playing in a lot of product areas that are very good for sustainability, um, like going to EVs, autonomous vehicles, clean water, uh, clean energy with wind turbines. So we're shifting our portfolio as we do it to hopefully catch these secular growth areas that also play to sustainability, which we think are great areas to be. That's right. Well, there's a lot of change. And of course, ESG is another one. I didn't put it on the list, but that's another one of the changes, which is, you know, I'm giving a speech later on uh, today about uh, ESG, what do you need to know? But, you know, my, my, my view is it's a bit of the wild, wild west, right? In terms of, of, of sorting it through. 
But, uh, you know, particularly for large companies, it's a challenge, right? Uh, yeah, well, the big, the, one of the big, but look, everyone's got to fix their footprint, obviously, their carbon footprint, and you got, you have programs internally in your company to do that. The real tough one, and I think if you can skin it as a company, is, and, and we see it almost to the point we can't keep up with it. Our customers are coming to us and want the circular economy. So how does this get reused later? What, you know, and it's amazing how many customers have approached us. So what we did is we proactively went out to our 30 top customers and started having a, an education sessions with them. How can DuPont help you with circularity? And that's a tough one to skin, but if you can skin it, you become a more valuable supplier to that customer. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there was one more question here. Yes, go, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Rob West from Chemical Week. I had a question about activists. And, um, how do you view them? Is, uh, are they good, bad, or depends? And uh, how should CEOs and boards engage when they get that call with activists? So I probably have more experience than anyone with activists. Um, DuPont had an activist, Dow had an activist, Tyco had an activist. Um, I, but I, I know my CEO friends get a little upset with me, but I consider myself an activist. So I usually side with them. Um, when, when, I, when DuPont got the white paper from Tryon, Nelson Peltz's company, and it was, I don't know, 60 page white paper on everything screwed up in the company and all that. I was a brand new board member and I said to the board, I, I actually 90% agree with this. I said, the only thing I don't agree with is how to go fix the problem. And I think we can fix it in a different way because there would have not been a DuPont left by the way. And the Nelson Pelt scenario was gonna split into five companies and not have the, the core left. Um, and I thought there was a more elegant way to do it. So honestly, I've generally sided with them. Um, the, um, we had an activist in Dow when, uh, Andrew Livers and I started talking. That was Dan Loeb, third point, um, really tough guys. Um, I read that white paper and I agreed with 90% of that also. So I, I guess it goes back to my point about acting like an owner and making bold, decisive moves. You sort of, maybe another way to say it is you need to be your own activist. Um, you know, what they were asking for was actually right. Um, and they were some big, bold moves, but I, at the end of the day, they had done great analysis um, and I turned both of them into my friends. Um, and I, to this day, they'll admit that to you publicly, um, that, you know, I just went about it differently, but they certainly endorsed what we were doing because we were getting to the, the right end game. And by the way, when, at Tyco, when I got in there, I became their friend because they're like, oh, okay, Ed thinks like we do, he'll get this thing fixed. So um, you, you have to react as a board when you get that. Um, you really got it. That, that goes back to being transparent with your board and being open. And, you know, if, if they have an opening to get you and their analysis is good, you're not going to hide from it. Um, they, they have too much cloud out there. And I've just watched it so many times. Um, you know, you need to deal with it. But if an activist comes at you like they used to and say, lever up and buy a bunch of shares back, I think that's a bunch of hogwash. You know, that's ridiculous. They're just trying to get a short-term bump in the stock so they can make some money and get out. But these activists nowadays are very smart. They got great teams by and large, um, and they do a lot of great strategic work. And um, I read white papers on many companies because it just interests me when the activists hit them. And, and nine times out of 10, I'm, a, I'm in agreement with them on most items. Yeah, that's right. 
Well, and and uh, I wrote an article a couple of years ago when there was a whole flurry of, of activists attacking chemical companies. And one of the key things was you should first focus on what's the right thing to do with your company and and then compare with what the activists say if 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 their if their lessons are reasonable then it's not a bad thing right because then you should do those things anyway right correct uh, totally correct. Look, we pride ourselves on starting exactly on time and it's exactly one o'clock so we're going to end on time we really really want to thank you ed for this really wonderful discussion fireside chat I think uh, I think the audience came away with some wonderful insights about uh, you know about your philosophy about you know transformative leadership and uh, so and I, I hope you, there'll be three or four more companies after this that you're going to be dealing with right uh, in the future uh, before you quote retire end quote but we're we're as you said uh, you want to be a cheerleader for your company. And, uh, and we want to be cheerleaders for you and your continued success at DuPont. Well, thanks for having me, Peter.